turn over to our teaching this morning. We're really glad to have Walt Davis with us from RUF Sanford University. He was going to preach for us this morning from Genesis 22, 1 through 19. Um, so I'm going to read the passage and then Walt will come up and uh, preach for us. Um, this is God's Word, Genesis 22, verses 1 through 19. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham arose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood of the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram, caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. As Matt said, I'm Walt Davis. It's, uh, it's great to be with you this morning. I actually don't. I'm the RUF campus minister at Sanford. Um, and one reason it's great to be with you is I typically don't get to stand in front of congregations that support our ministry and just say thank you. So uh, I do want to take this occasion just to say how much we appreciate Red Mountain and the support you all provide for our ministry at Sanford. Um, a few weeks ago, I think it would have been a couple months ago, we were wrapping up the semester. We had been to uh, our end of the year summer conference. And uh, we were sitting around a table, and one of our sophomores um, 
a Chinese-American girl, was kind of sharing her story. She and her twin had been adopted at birth. Uh, she grew up in Tennessee, and she was sharing a number of things that she's really grateful for. She has uh, two wonderful parents who are involved, who are committed, who care greatly about her and she and her sister, um, who are Christians. They have come to know the gospel. Um, they love the church. They love the Lord. And I really appreciated her honesty because she didn't stop there. She said, and I also have uh, a number of struggles with this. Like, um, it's hard for me to think through the fact that I'm the exception to the norm. Um, So many of uh, the people I grew up, that I would have grown up around, so many of my biological family members didn't have um, this experience. And concomitantly, they don't know the Lord. Um, And I appreciated her honesty, and my guess, obviously, these kind of questions and issues, I feel, are way above my pay grade. Um, But I suspect the next two years, she's a rising junior, I suspect the next two years will be spent kind of processing together um, the mystery of salvation, the Lord's love for all of humanity, uh, the effects of sin, uh, the need for evangelism, all these things. And I just mentioned that to you all because every time I think about conversations like this, two things come to mind. One, um, our students, despite being young, um, are grappling with deep personal issues and big spiritual questions. And two, um, it's remarkable to me that right in their midst is an ordained minister. One of the only reasons a minister exists on our campuses is because people like you and churches like Red Mountain actually care enough about college ministry to put a minister on the campus. And so... I love my job, so I want to say thank you for y'all's support. And then on behalf of our students, um, they also are really appreciative of y'all. So thank y'all for that. I'll pray for us real quick, and we'll dive into our text. Lord, we come to you humbly this morning, thankful that, um, Lord, you have given us another day. The sun has come up, um, and we are able to gather here to be encouraged by your word, to learn from your word, to be um, lifted up by one another. We pray that you'd be present this morning. Amen. So before we go any further, I should just admit that I find this text quite difficult. Um, I feel like anyone that just reads this text, you can read it, you could skim it, and it still is a bit jarring. So I I find it really hard, and um, I've actually discussed the text with a number of folks, namely Britton Wood, um, who's an REF area coordinator. And so anything helpful here is largely due to his uh, input, not just myself. But uh, I really just want to discuss two things this morning, and it's this. Uh, You saw our sermon title, Who is the Lord? The two things I want to discuss are, we all treat something as Lord. As humans, uh, we can't not treat something as Lord. And then secondly, Jesus is the only generous Lord that we can serve. So we all treat something as Lord, um, number one. Uh, I don't think it's a stretch to say that lordship as a concept is kind of lost or unfamiliar um, in our context, in our society. Um, we don't typically think in that category. We don't think about something having tons of, a, of authority like that. We're not familiar with that word in general. And one of the reasons we may not be familiar with that, there's a variety of them, but one of them certainly is that we're also much less familiar with the concept of sacrifice. Um, continually, constantly, frequently giving up our preferences uh, to serve something much greater. And one of the reasons we may uh, be less familiar with both serving a Lord, something being Lord over us, uh, and sacrifice is because we live in the era of what economists call the era of mass customization, meaning that whenever we enter the marketplace, um, 
we have a variety of options and all of our preferences are being catered to continually. So we feel as if we don't need to sacrifice a micrometer um, when, we, when we need something. Used to, um, if you just think back, it would have been very typical if you needed something to go to the store and then just not have it. But if they did have it, you would, you, potentially you'd even go to the shop and it would just be sitting there complete, unalterable, finished. And if you wanted it, you doled out the money, maybe negotiated some, and then you bought it and you just had to be content with what you got. You can remember Henry Ford's line, um, and this wasn't that long ago. You can have the Model T in any color you want, so long as it's black. That was the, that's been the mentality for so long, but today, if you want a new car, and I actually went on six automobile websites to check this out. If you want a new car, it's almost impossible just to find kind of the make, model, and price. And the reason you can't just find the price so quickly is because there's so many customizable features that they can't really accurately generate one unless you describe all the features you want. So instead, what all six websites had was this option for build and price. And once you clicked it, you kind of entered the design lab, so to speak, and you built the car yourself from the ground up. It's like six phases, like exterior, interior, engine, accessories, electronics, and something else. And you feel as if you have your influence or preference over every square inch of the car. Obviously, nothing wrong with this. It's quite nice to be able to get the car just like you want. But nevertheless, that is the kind of day and age in which we live. Um, And because of this, it's often difficult to think in terms of something being, uh, something having the status of lordship over us and having control or influence or needing us to actually sacrifice our preferences. Um, And one of the reasons that um, this is so important is that even though we don't think in terms of um, lordship, we don't think in terms of actually having a lord, we all do have lords, and we serve them every day. It's something that we actually can't avoid doing. Augustine described uh, humans with one word. He said, with one word, he said, we are, by nature, at our core, lovers. Meaning, we look in and we realize... We can't get through life on our own. We need more than just ourselves. So we immediately look outside of ourselves. And when we do, we almost can't help but have affections for things and put our hope in things or put our trust in things. It's like we're hardwired to do that. Um, And so we really are, in a sense, a hierarchy of loves. And if you want to know what you love... All you have to do is look at your decisions, right? Our decisions kind of provide a mirror for what it is that we love, what it is we prioritize. How do we spend our our time, our money? Where do we focus our attention? These things simply reveal what it is that we love. And if you want to know what you love most, it's very simple. You can just think through the, the times where you've had options and you really felt like, I only have one choice. I'm obligated here. It, I, I, I can't even pretend like I have other things. It has to be this one. For those of you who grew up in kind of SEC uh, territory, perhaps even elsewhere, you've heard something along these lines where uh, someone's reflecting back on when they got married, and uh, they'll say something like this. You know, I told my spouse when we decided to get married that I'd be willing to live anywhere, absolutely anywhere they wanted to, so long as it's within 60 miles of Auburn, Alabama. 
or Oxford, Mississippi, or Athens, Georgia. What's being said there? What's being said is, this thing is my highest love. And you just need to know if something comes in conflict with it, this thing's going to trump. This thing's going to win. That's how we know actually what our highest love is. Um, So in a sense, we, we really are kind of a hierarchy of loves. We all have something that we love most. And the time that we, the times that we feel most acutely uh, that we are simply a consortium of loves is when we have to choose between two things that we love the same. Two things that we love equally. An inevitable conversation among college students, especially our seniors, is this. It goes along these lines. A student will say, you know, I'm graduating. I really love you know, this particular field. I've got a really cool opportunity to work in this actual field. Like, I've got a job offer. I've never gotten a, you know, a full-time job offer before. i got a job offer. Uh, and I'm really excited about it. I love the people I'm working with, that I'd be working with. And uh, it's in Ruston, Louisiana. And you can kind of just feel, you know, like the deflate there. And they'll say, but all my friends... They're moving to Nashville, and I love Nashville, and I, I would really love to live there, and I really love my friends. I don't want to part with them. Shoot, even one of my family members is thinking about moving there. I just can't do what I, I can't do the type of work I like there. So, you know, what should I do, right? Two things, right? I really, really love. For some of us, the dilemma might just be the really simple, common um, kind of conundrum of a lot of old friends that you haven't seen in a really long time are taking a really fun trip and you really want to go and truly it may be kind of like a once in a lifetime or once in 20 year kind of experience and you love these folks and you want to capitalize on the opportunity but the problem is it's not the worst time to be away from family but it isn't the best so what do we do when two things we love come in conflict with one another that's where we really find out what do we love most and because we're all familiar with this tension Choosing between two things we hold so dearly, that's why we sympathize so hard with Abraham in this passage. The story starts off like, a, like just a shot out of a cannon. If you'll look back, God calls Abraham. Abraham says, here I am. And then God responds. And I want us to notice the language here because, um, you know, as hard as this is to kind of stomach, it's clear as day that God knows exactly what he's asking for. He says, I need you to take your son... Your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to Mount Moriah to give him up as an offering to me. God knows exactly what he's asking for here. Uh, we've said our choices reveal our loves. I want to just make maybe three short observations about this passage. We've said choices reveal our loves, but one thing we're reminded of immediately is this. Whatever we love, whatever we love ultimately... It's going to require sacrifices. There is nothing that we can love that isn't going to demand something of us. This is the sobering reality whenever we take a job, whenever we get married, whenever we become um, you know, a volunteer of an organization or on the board of a certain charity. They're all great and wonderful things, but we all realize very quickly that they come with their own set of demands, don't they? They come with their own requests, their own demands, their own sacrifices that we have to make in order to actually contribute to these things. 
But it doesn't just take this kind of principle that our loves require sacrifices. It doesn't just apply to kind of general life decisions. It actually applies to our character as well. Um, Whatever we love will require sacrifice. So if you think about it, if something like reputation uh, is our highest love, being thought highly of by other people, then um, we're going to be prone to a few things. One is going to be exaggeration. One might be lying. One might be gossip. It feels good if we're pursuing reputation to subtly kind of cut someone else down so that we actually look better. And so what do we sacrifice? We sacrifice our integrity. Or if we think about comfort, if comfort is kind of the thing that at the end of the day, if we can just have comfort, we'll be happy, then we'll never be able to engage the things that are uncomfortable about life. And when friends go through hard times, it's going to be quite hard to demonstrate compassion in those instances. Or career and resume. If these are the things that we, if we can become important in our career, then we'll be happy. If that becomes our highest love, have no doubt it will require sacrifice and it will require sacrifice from time that would otherwise be spent with friends and family. Bottom line, whatever we choose as our highest love, it will make demands and it will require sacrifice. This is the first thing we see in this passage. But the second thing we see, uh, and this is also startling in some ways, is that God's request... Uh, his request that Abraham give up his son Isaac, as extreme as it appears when we first give a cursory glance on it, if we think through who Isaac is for Abraham, it's actually much more extreme than it first appears. If you'll think back to Genesis 12, God approaches, God calls to Abraham, and he makes a huge ask. He says, I need you to leave your hometown and go where I'm going to show you. And he makes a promise saying, if you do, I'm going to give you a son. Abraham had no children. He said, I'm going to give you a son. And through that son, he is going to have multiple descendants. And those descendants are going to be the blessing to the world. It's a big promise. Not only that, um, but if you think about it, uh, Isaac is Abraham's, who would have been considered, his first son. Meaning the family name would have been carried by Isaac. Not only that, at this day and age, um, your firstborn son was going to inherit almost all of your wealth. And that firstborn son was going to be looked to to provide income and security and provision when the parents aged. So in, in a lot of ways, Isaac seems like the only thing God can't ask for. He's the only thing that it seems like God can't ask for. But by the very same token... He's one of the only things Abraham can actually look to in this world for security, for trust, for hope outside of the Lord. And here's here's the point. God desires to be our highest love. That is his rightful place. And he desires to be there. But in order for him to be there, what's he going to have to do? He's going to have to displace whatever is there presently. And that, that is typically... Painful. Um, he's going to come for his right place. And what we need to recognize is that anything else that is in that top rung, anything else that we make our highest love that isn't the Lord, is eventually going to erode not only our character, but our ability to love others very well. Um, so God's going to come for his right place. And we have to realize that that's actually counterintuitively that's actually though it doesn't feel like it that's actually what's best for us and those around us 
If you think about anything else that can be in that top rung, if you, if you take um, just making others happy, that seems like a wholesome, wholesome, you know, high love. If that's our goal, just making others happy, well then, what happens when loving someone else, when loving a friend actually requires you to tell them something they don't want to hear? You won't be able to do it. You won't be able to be a good friend. You won't be able to help them. Likewise, if, if another friend is on the outs with other people and being a loyal friend means actually sticking with them, standing by them. But if your highest love is, I need to make everyone happy, you're also going to be overwhelmed and unable to do it. Anything else that is in that top rung that is not the Lord is going to ultimately erode our own character and our ability to love others very well. So what God is doing to Abraham and what he does to us is he comes for his rightful place. And what's so hard is that because we're drawing life from these things, God's saving us. He's redeeming us. But it feels like he's killing us. Um, When my wife and I got married, I was still in seminary. And I had like a semester and a half left. And and I can just vividly remember a few specific times where I'm in my last semester. I've got a few like big cumulative projects. And whenever one of these would come up, I'd spend, you know, sun up, sun down in the library. And uh, I would get to a good place. I mean, in full transparency with you, I'd get to where this is my best work. I can be content with it. And I would go home. But I would go home. I would eat dinner. I'd go back to the bedroom or something. And my mind would begin, you know, kind of drifting, thinking, man, it if this isn't as good as I think it is, that's going to be kind of embarrassing in front of my professors. Or I'm going to kind of look silly in front of a bunch of my friends. And so I'd go down that path until what would happen. I would actually go back into the den, pull my notes and the project back out, and then I would actively try, in full transparency with you all, to kind of shut out my wife so that I could zoom in on you know, my notes and on my studies and on this project. And Rachel, my wife, would let this go on for a while. But eventually... She would come and sit down beside me on the couch. She'd do one of two things. She would either lean back on the other side and plop her legs up over top of my notes. Or she would swing the other way and lay her head on top of my notes and stare up at me smiling. It would kill me. Absolutely kill me. The reality, however, is that it was a really kind way for her to remind me that I was first a husband and secondly a student. God does this very thing. He will come for our highest loves when they are not Him. And it is going to feel like death because we're trying to draw life from these things. But the reality is, contrary to the way it feels, He's actually saving us. Which leads me uh, to this last point. There is only one chief love that can be more life-giving than life-demanding. Um, and we need to look at the conclusion of the story to see this. One thing that all commentators mention is that when you get to the end of the story, the pace of the episode, the pace of the narrative actually slows way down. I mean, if you read back over it, you'll see there are like multiple days that kind of uh, elapse at the beginning when they're taking the journey. Um, and it goes really quickly. But as it gets close to the climax of the story... As Abraham approaches the altar, things slow down to a painful, painful crawl. And all the commentators, they, they said this is significant for one reason. Because it's slow, it shows that Abraham was actually going to do it. Abraham was actually going to give up his son. And his rationale is made clear by this phrase, three words, that's repeated twice in the narrative. 
The phrase is this, God will provide. He says it once when Isaac says, Dad, where is, where is the sacrifice? The altar's here, the wood's here, but where is the sacrifice? Abraham's reply, God will provide. And after the whole episode finishes and Abraham looks back and he's on his journey home, he actually names the place. And he names the place God will provide. If you want a three-word summary of faith, that's a good one. God will provide. His chorus wasn't, um, I can do this, I can do this, I can do this. His chorus was simply, I know the Lord, I trust the Lord, He will make it right. He will make it right. He will make it right. I don't, under, I don't understand why. How often do we feel that way? I don't understand why. I don't understand how. But I know the Lord, and I know He will provide. Hebrews 11 actually says, Abraham reasoned that should God want, should God need, He could raise Isaac up from the dead. Abraham has faith in the resurrection long before Jesus Abraham's trust is that the Lord will work this out somehow. Um, we have a five-month-old five son, and uh, on the day he was born, the process took something like 15, 17 hours, and it was going really smoothly until like hour 12, and we hit kind of a, a complication. And the doctor comes in and, and tells us kind of, here's the scenario, here's what's going on, um, here's the problem. And we kind of have two ways to move forward. And she lays out two options, and neither one of them are sound ideal. So kind of discouraged, the doctor leaves. Rachel and I talk it over. Pros and cons, pros and cons, pros and cons. And I can remember her tearing up at one point and saying, neither of these, neither of these sound ideal. But I want to do what she suggested. Because I trust her. That's Abraham here. Abraham's looking at a hard situation. And he's saying, I know the Lord. I know Him. And I can trust Him. And I can remember at a certain time we were having this conversation with uh, the doctor. And just so you know, our son was born smoothly and he's healthy now. Um, but we're having this conversation with the doctor. I can remember Rachel has a uh, skillful way of getting the answers that she wants out of people. And I remember the doctor kind of just wanted to just lay the two options out, not you know, suggest one over the other. And finally Rachel says, if you're in my shoes, what would you do? If you're sitting here, what would you do? And so finally, you know, the doctor reveals... Well, if I'm in your shoes, here's what I would do. So that's the option we choose. It worked out great. Hearing that story secondhand, it's, to me, I look back thinking, well, no kidding he went with the doctor's suggestion. What, what else were you going to do? Wave your theology degree? You know, and say, actually, doctor, I, I, have, a more, I have a better way to navigate this. You know, I, I have a, a ministry degree, and I think I can apply it here and find some medical path. No, right? That would be absurd. Um, we defer to the one who knows best, who knows the situation best. But what we need to see is that when we mark out certain areas of our lives and we say, Lord, I know your word, I know your will, I know your design for me, but it's not going to actually have bearing over this. That's exactly what we do. 
When we mark off areas, areas of our life and say, sorry, Lord, your reign is actually going to stop here and you're not going to have influence over this thing, that's us actually looking the creator of the universe in the face, the one who knows precisely what's best for us and saying, I can't, I can't let you inform how we go through this situation. Um, kind of the deep suspicion that we have whenever we, whenever we think through exactly how we're going to navigate something and we think we actually know what's best. The deep suspicion we have is that the Lord actually doesn't have our best interest at heart. The deep suspicion we have is, I think the Lord's holding out on me. I think the Lord might not want what's best for me. And that's why we have to really bear down and see how this story ends. Fortunately, the story doesn't end with... um, Abraham actually sacrificing Isaac. Uh, In his heart, Abraham gives up his most prized possession and look closely at what the Lord says. He booms into the situation, calls Abraham by name twice. Abraham, Abraham, do not lay a hand on the boy. Now I know that you fear me. Now I know that I, that I am your highest love. And he directs him to a ram in the thicket who's the substitute and Abraham actually makes a sacrifice with the ram. But what we often have to, what we, what we really need to see is that God didn't desire to take Isaac from Abraham. What God wanted to do was redeem Isaac for Abraham. But just like us, in order to redeem Isaac, in order to make that relationship something that's actually healthy, God had to first uh, force him to let go of Isaac in order to restore him and give him back in his right place. And we know that God's desire was ultimately for Abraham's good. We know God's desire is ultimately for our good. Because at the end of the day, there is a sacrifice that has to be made. There is a penalty for all the sins, all the idolatry that we have accrued. And Paul is very clear in Romans, the wages of sin is death. That's what, that's what we deserve. That's what the wages are. But God looks down knowing that's what's actually required and necessary for us. And he says, I want you to have life so badly. I love you so much that I'm going to become the ram in the thicket. I'm going to become the substitute. I'm going to become the one who goes up on the altar so that you don't have to. I want you to have life so badly that I'm going to take you off the altar. And in Jesus, I'm going to put myself on the altar so that you may have life. So this morning, there is an invitation. Um, An invitation to do just like Abraham. And to examine our lives and say, what is it that I will not let the Lord inform? What is it that I will not let the Lord touch? And the invitation is to actually identify them, take them to Him, and say, Lord, I trust You. You are my Lord. You know what's best for me, and You will provide what I need These things belong to you. Let's pray. Father, um, hard passage. But Lord, um, we can see ourselves so clearly um, in ways in Abraham. And Father, I just, I pray that you would help us to see how good you are to us. How deeply you desire our best. So that we might actually give our lives to you wholly, not withholding anything. In your name I pray. Amen.